0: Welcome to The Literary State, a podcast by the 6th Missouri State Poet Laureate. I am Mary Frances Wagner. Today's poet is Andres Rodriguez. Andres Rodriguez is the author of two poetry collections, Night Song and Portal of Dreams. He has also written a scholarly work, Book of the Heart, The Poetics, Letters, and Life of John Keats. His poems have appeared in Bilingual Review, The Cortland Review, Drunken Boat, Harvard Review, Hubbub, New York Quarterly, Palabra, Valparaíso Review, and other journals. Several anthologies have also included his work, among them Currents from the Dancing River, Dream of a Word, New Chicano Chicana Writing, and Wild Song. In 2007, Rodriguez won the Maureen Egan Writers Exchange Award in Poetry, sponsored by Poets and Writers. He earned an MA in Creative Writing from Stanford University and a PhD in Literature from the University of California Santa Cruz. He lives in Kansas City, Missouri, and has taught English and writing at colleges and universities since 1990. Welcome, Andres.
1: Thank you, Mary Francis.
0: I'd like to start the interview by asking you two questions that might be helpful to writers out there listening in, or potential writers. Do you write with content, style, or any other category utmost in mind?
1: I rarely start a poem with one of those things. Usually when I have begun something with a predetermined theme, focus, style, whatever, the result has been disastrous. Um, I don't look for ideas or subject matter. There are lots of ways of being a writer, uh, but for me, looking for creating creative projects isn't one of them. I always think of uh, William Carlos Williams's No Ideas But In Things, w- which was not just a rhetorical um, thing or some kind of modernist credo. From his statement, uh, I take it to mean the sense of taking the world as it is, but always transforming it by the imagination. So for me, things, No Ideas But In Things, include change, inspiration, surprise, astonishment, suffering, pain, and death. Maybe those are ideas, but for me, they're places, they're images, they're offerings, and usually random and chaotic most of the time. I connect no ideas but in things to Keats's negative capability. Do you know that phrase? It's it's in one of his letters. It was a discovery of of some importance uh, in uh, 1817. Keats had been writing for only a short time, um, but the quality, the literary quality, the poetic quality that he admired most was capability, quote, of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason, end quote. In other words, Keats was offering to himself and to us a negative or an opposite to the dry intellectual mode of reason. He saw that living in the moment was an initiation into imagination and reality at the same time. What he did was to open the door to the soul, which had been closed in English poetry for a long time. And it was the romantics that opened that door to the soul because they admired the lowly and the outcast experience of souls. So remember, this, this is the uh, the romantics are following the, the age of reason. So they were reclaiming something that had been missing to a great extent. And that opening negative capability um, was really something and, st- and still is. If there are ideas or themes in a poem of mine, I recognize them only after the poem is written. When I go back over what I've written, when I think I've got a book of poems, I do see the experience of things like family, culture, history, love, death, sometimes poetry itself. My former teacher and friend, Simone Piero told me that what he sees in my work is a combination of ordinary intimacies and great public Historical events, and I think he's right. Those are the, some of the preoccupations that I see in my work. But I always trust the process of discovery and searching that leads to the formalized shape of those uh, preoccupations. I absolutely trust that. But never start out with a with a prefixed idea.
0: Okay. Thank you. That's a great answer. In addition to Keats, which poets do you return to more or less continually in your reading? And do they play a part in your work? And if so, how?
1: Oh, yes. There are authors that I read every year, uh, unfailingly. William Carlos Williams is one of those for me. Uh, The Chilean poet Pablo Neruda is another one of those. uh, Very essential people. Dickinson, and there's there's a there's a list of people. Uh, they're just yearly, you know, requirements. Keats, I read very often, uh, more than just once a year, and I really identify with the Romantic tradition. In college, you know, like everybody, I read Coleridge, Wordsworth, Byron, Shelley, Keats. Um, after I had started writing poetry, and that's when I began to conceive of poetry as a unique activity. Um, Back then though, I never imagined that I would one day write a book on Keats's letters. Um, I'd read his his poems uh, up to that time, but I was still figuring out a lot of things on my own about poetry. A teacher suggested I look more deeply into Keats and specifically said, well, look at his letters. I had read selections of the letters before, but never all of them at once. And up to then, Keats had not been an influence In my writing, I liked his poems, but the the visionary quality was way beyond me and I hadn't read them closely. I hadn't explicated them for myself. But now, the more I lived with the poems and the letters both, the more my enthusiasm grew. On the one hand, the sensuousness and intensity of the poetry. On the other hand, the observations and truth about life and the soul on the other in both things, the power of imagination and the life of the heart. I don't write like Keats, but he made me more sensitive to sound and texture in my own writing. He also showed me that embracing uncertainty was a way to counsel my own patience in the search for definitiveness. And finally, he showed me that there is a variety of poems and occasions for poetry all of that made a huge impression on me. I think anybody would benefit from reading Keats. He was, first and foremost, a writer. So a poet is a specific kind of writer. He, you know, he was a poet, but he was, he was a writer. He was capable of writing narratives. He, he would have been a great novelist. He wrote, uh, he was capable of writing literary reviews, um, literary criticism, and a lot more, um, but primarily you know, he was a writer. And if you read his letters, you can read them for his observations on the art of poetry, and they're still very relevant to today. He's one of the most valuable guides I have found in all of literature, which includes Shakespeare and Dante and a lot more. He's a guide to feeling and its expression. He's a guide to the discipline of writing. He's a guide to understanding the human condition, especially in terms of suffering and death. He was trained as a doctor, but he chose the path of poetry because he saw a better way to heal through words, through their effect, their total effect on our being. Medicine was crude in his day, and yet we still see the limits of medicine today, despite incredible advances and discoveries. I think he'd have been a great doctor if he had practiced medicine, but the reason he gave up medicine is because literature is always an unfailing source of coping, comforting, and understanding. That's the healing that he felt he could do best as a poet. And to me, all of those things um, constitute the basis of a more humane life uh, that describes the whole person, not just physiology. When you read Keats, especially in conversation with the other romantics, he emerges, at least for me, as an exemplary poet and writer. When you live with a great writer, which is what every all writers should do. You know, again, no matter who it is, Virginia Woolf, T.S. Eliot, when you live with a great writer, you find that they begin to live in you. And that in itself, in itself helps you explain why poetry is so important to the culture. And that also often clarifies the sense of your own poetry. So whatever helps you as a writer is something that you should incorporate in your life. I would say the biggest lesson that I would tell others for reading Keats would be to say how you can find your own negative capability to challenge your assumptions, to, to open the, the, um, the vision of your life to other things that are non-rational, that are not as certain. The uncertainty uh, should be permitted into, into your reading. And again, I would say, um, negative capability is something that can be applied in many different ways. So this year was the 200th anniversary of his death. He died 200 years ago from tuberculosis. The Europe was in the midst of uh, an epidemic uh, that claimed a quarter of the adult population. And you know we think, well, that can't happen ever again, and yet AIDS and now the coronavirus hit. Um, and it reminds me that you know um, of all the people that we've lost to pandemics and epidemics, but especially the young, that's particularly heart wrenching And Keats was 25 when he died. Um, and he died um, uh, a very drawn out and violent death on TV. But his death will never overshadow his achievement as a poet. And I think as time passes, Keats will become even more
0: important to the culture uh, that he has now to know. Thank you, Andres. That is uh, very interesting about Keats, and I think that should kind of spark us all to read some more of his work. And speaking of a spark, would you be willing to share with us um, an idea for a prompt or uh, a challenge to the writer to maybe get him started on a poem?
1: Here's a very simple exercise to kickstart a poem. It's called Things That, and it's all about relationship to the world, which is most important in poetry. So you can use this list, I'll read it out. You can add to it, you can change it, you can make up your own list as long or as short as you like because the goal is to tap into your creative energy. The more sensory that you can be, the better you can uncover a feeling, an obsession, a mystery, a situation that you might want to explore in the first draft of the poem. So connect the exercise, if you can, to your own life or to somebody's life. Don't hold back. With writing, you should just really let loose. Exercises are really great for learning to trust the process of writing. Frank Conroy used to tell all of us students, trust the process, he was so right. So here's um, a uh, a sample of categories, titles, whatever you want to call them, of things that. So number one, things that fall from the sky. Number two, things that give a hot feeling. Number three, things that have lost their power. Number four, things that are squalid. And number five, things that make no sound. So here's an example that I drew up with using the category things that startle. So here's my list. One, bright red hats. Two, mice in the night. Three, the sudden unexpected decision. Four, footsteps and shooting stars. Five, a worm and a half, eaten, half, uh, half bitten apple. Six, the sudden thought that this is the wrong train or bus. And seven, the last leaf falling from a tree on a clear winter's day. That's all it is, it's just a, a generation of list, but the list should be again, something that puts you in relationship to the world and makes use of all five of your senses. It's a, it's a good way to begin. In fact, several of my poems have, have had uh, exactly this kind of start from um, a category like things that fall from the sky.
0: Thank you. I'm writing these down and I'm going to try this. Well, uh, finally today, uh, would you be willing to share with us one or two of your poems?
1: Sure, uh, this poem is called Cicadas. Louder now, they weave their song among the trees, grappled onto branches where wind never upends them, where summer strikes fire into a voice. Like old pipers wheezing the same crazed note between catches of breath, they sit in their unreachable height and drone that underground music after seven or 17 years, raucous lords of the air and earth. How do they sleep so long in darkness beneath the surface noise of the earth? How do they know it's time to rise up in the hottest month of the year? What do they see after those murky years with tiny eyes like beads of blood? It must be memories old bright place. The first desert, prairie, swamp or wood where their cries came bubbling up to terrify or tire creation's other forms. A man on my block who worked nights once shotgunned the trees outside his house as if that would stop the buggy music. But as the smoke cleared, it arose at once and that man fell back nameless, silent, drained by those agonizers, the throatless song. When I lie sleepless in my room, unable to dream or breathe the pressured air, the sound in my ears pierces my heart with dusty white pincers unkillable. As a boy, I'd see one fall from the sky, wrapped with a hornet in a death embrace. They'd land in a blur on sidewalk or grass and a prolonged shriek left use. Not like any laugh or cry I'd ever heard, but still a screeching or beseeching that arced the air with a zinc flash whose cinders fell on everything. I'd watch the brief struggle until death arose with the king in his arms. The sudden chill felt back then comes now with a buzz, heard in chicharras, whose slangy meaning is electric cattle prods. Somewhere, a torturer enters a cell or brightly lit room with one of these ravagers of burning steel. It's blackened head sparks and crackles, searing the genitals of a woman or man whose suffering feeds the lords of death, whose terror lasts a thousand, thousand years.
0: Thank you, wonderful poem. Thanks so much for joining us today, Andres. I'm sure our listeners will be challenged to think about their own way of writing in a new way. And thanks to all of you out there who have joined us today on the Literary State podcast. I'm Mary Frances Wagner, and I hope you will join us for another of our podcasts.